Welcome to The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. Today, our host, Jason Felger, and partner, Yelena Skolnick, sit down to talk about the new rules of e-commerce with Jess Skynazi. Jess is an absolute rock star who's currently SVP of Business Development and Transformation for Dyson in the Americas and has experience at LVMH, Amazon, L'Oreal, Cartier, and more. Jess, we're so excited to have you on. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And to share with our listeners a quick review of your background, you started your career in marketing for brands like L'Oreal and Louis Vuitton, and then you spent six years doing marketing and business development at Richemont, which counts Van Cleef and Cartier and Piaget and many others among its brands. And from there, you led the charge to convince luxury beauty brands to sell on Amazon, something we definitely want to come back to for sure, how you did that before moving to LVMH to focus on distribution and e-commerce. And now you're here in Chicago as SVP of Business Development and Transformation for Dyson in the Americas. That is a stellar list of experiences, um, and it makes your perspective on our topic today so relevant, which is the evolution of luxury e-commerce and brand strategy. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, so glad to be here with you today. And I certainly couldn't have this conversation without being joined by Yelena Skolnick on our team, who leads our investments in the future of commerce. Welcome, Yelena. Hey, guys. Hi, Yelena. So, Jessica, to get us warmed up and in the right mindset, take us through how you think about the evolution of luxury brands over the past few decades, and specifically how they've embraced new technologies, especially around their marketing and distribution to customers. Absolutely. So, yeah, I have spent the past decade observing the intersection of technology, distribution, digital and tech within the lens of retail, fashion, beauty and luxury. And it's been an amazing transformation. Brands have had to adapt to give away some control to bring in consumers into two way conversations to lean into new distribution channels, new social touch points and to really reinvent themselves always to stay relevant. We went from the early days of e-commerce to frictionless, for the most part, commerce experiences highly powered by technology. And I think that the acceleration of technology has happened so fast and has really been set by the expectations of those consumers of them wanting more from the brands. And those expectations have been set by consumers, but have been implemented by other big players in retail and e-commerce first. Let's get into some of your experiences with Amazon. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you know, a company that's kind of broken through and pushed some of this evolution and and pushed some of this this advancement. So you sat in a very interesting position at Amazon where you were responsible for bringing on luxury beauty brands to the platform. This is arguably a radically different point of distribution for those brands. So how did they approach working with Amazon? And frankly, how did you convince them to do that? Ah, that was such a good experience. So at Amazon, I was wearing two hats. One was how do we grow the brands that we do have already signed into the platform? Your overall sort of like category leader business, managing the PL, ensuring profitability and growth for all of the brands in the platform. Luxury Beauty at the time, about 400 brands of various sizes, of various distribution, existing distribution in the US as well. What we didn't have at the time was that tier one luxury brand that had joined the platform. And frankly speaking, 
we were going to those luxury conglomerates, the LVMH, the L'Oreal's, the Lauders, the Shiseido's, and they were not interested in taking meetings with us. They did not see that they needed Amazon because they had never needed Amazon. They were very happy with their specialty beauty retailers, Sephora, Ulta, and their legacy department stores, Nordstrom, Macy's, Niemann's, et cetera, right? So honestly, they did not see the need for Amazon. And that was the second hat that I was wearing. How do we convince those brands to join the platform and explore the business models? I have to say, Amazon came to those brands the Amazon way. We're Amazon. We're the biggest. We need everything. We want it now. We're going to price match everything. Please sign here at the bottom of the page. Didn't work for those luxury brands. So it was all about how do we change the narrative a little bit into talking about things that are important for those brands. And when we look at that and we talk about brand safety and storytelling and brand stores and gating, which is the notion of protecting the brand distribution online so that no one else can sell it, suddenly the conversation was a lot more interesting. That was step one. Step two was a lot of education. How do we show that there is a one-to-one parity between your American luxury customer and your prime Amazon clients? Those are the exact same people. And to an extent, the value proposition of Amazon itself around convenience, around assortment, around extremely fast delivery, those are luxury value propositions as well. So by opening the eyes of some of those luxury brands into this, we were able to reopen the conversation in a way where we put the customer at the center of the conversation instead of the business model and the idea that it was an Amazon talking to those brands versus a Sephora and Alta again. And then really, ultimately, by going onto Amazon and seeing some of the results that they were seeing, including not cannibalizing the sales from other channels, which was also sort of like a primal fear that we had to diffuse, we made those brands much more comfortable being in the platform. And frankly, when you are talking about wanting to sell where your customers are, you have to be on Amazon today. It's 110 million Prime members in the US or more. Those are customers who value their time, who know exactly what they're looking for, who do engage with the Amazon experience in that they are reading the reviews, who are leveraging and trusting Amazon customer service, who enjoy that. And so those are amazing consumers to be able to talk to on Amazon. So I'm I'm a big Amazon fan. I've had a Prime account since 2001. So it was was a good experience in that perspective. This is not a perfect comp, but one thing that I have always been curious about, I mean, obviously transitioning to selling on Amazon, that is a massive transition for a lot of these brands, but they've also made some other material transitions in the way they communicate with customers because now they're also available on Snap and TikTok and they're making their presences felt in these walled gardens, these social universes, which must feel to them. They're certainly the first few times as a very foreign, very different way to approach customers or interact. And I'd love your perspective on why they do that, how they think about doing that. Is this really a method of engaging with a very young generation and bringing them up with the idea of these luxury brands? What makes them excited? How do they think about strategy for this very different portal? I love that question, Yelena, because something that I spend a lot of time thinking about is the notion of commerce everywhere. In other words, you don't need to have a channel strategy that's either your website or your retailers anymore. Potentially, you can even rethink the validity of having a website. What is a website? Is it a place under which you are fulfilling orders online? And if that's the case, do clients actually need to land on a PDP on your site and go into a full 
funnel transaction process. I don't necessarily believe so today. And so when we see the emergence of those communities and those spaces online that gather people with intense engagement around shared interests, I think it's an incredible opportunity to tap into that and to engage in a very organic way with brands. I would say that it's kind of a two-step process. Brands go into it first sort of backwards, frankly, <laughs> looking at it from a either a PR or a media opportunity. But then as the maturity in the commerce offerings of those ecosystems matures, then it becomes interesting to engage with them as sort of like a true commerce channel. And we've seen that with the rise of Instagram shopping. We've seen that with the rise of TikTok shoppable videos. We are seeing that with a lot of pilots that uh, YouTube and others are starting to integrate on their platforms. And I love the idea of commerce and content to the most seamless way that you stay native in that social environment where you are building an experience and content that is made for that that environment as well. And and where it's super seamless, frankly, and frictionless for, for the brands. Now, do we see a ton of results? Honestly, no. Are we selling millions of dollars of products on those platforms? No, and not yet. Are those platforms skewing towards much younger slash aspirational consumers? Yes, certainly. But is it a great way to work up a funnel into increasing your brand awareness, your brand health, your brand image, and then offering that assortment? Yes, absolutely. I think that one of the key things to remember, though, is you cannot build like-for-like experiences on all of those platforms. In other words, you cannot have your entire assortment, your full price range on a TikTok or on a Stab. It it doesn't make sense. I love the ideas of brands experimenting with drops, with curated assortment, with capsule collections, with collabs and partnerships. I think that's much more powerful to be in sync with the cultural phenomenon that are around some of those platforms. So this is on the commerce side. Now, what you're talking about as well in terms of lens, filters, ARs, overlays, I love that as well as a great way to engage with brands, with brands switching from commerce outlets to media broadcasters and to content streamers, right? How do we engage with a brand without even thinking that there's something to buy behind it, but because of what the brand stands for, because of its creativity, because of its point of view, because of its cultural relevance. And some amazing brands are, are doing great things in that space. And they're they're pushing it really far, right? We're seeing video games. We're seeing very sophisticated uh, virtual environments into which you can navigate into those surreal worlds. There is a lot of excitement. And I, I'm seeing just a whole new wave of creativity powered by those new technologies as well that's emerging from those brands. And and that in itself is also incredibly exciting, even going beyond the sort of commerce outputs that could happen on some of those platforms. I love that you went there because that is definitely a category that we've been so fascinated by. I mean, the the first part of your answer, the transition of what historically were marketing outlets, these social channels to really commerce platforms and places where people are shopping. And we know something like 50% of Gen Z's have bought something through a social platform. It's a very different dynamic than the generations that came before. So it is really fascinating to hear you talk about how exciting that potentially could be for brands. 
I mean, one natural question is they do let go of the experience a bit, right? It isn't the same as walking into a Gucci store and having a lot of that tailored and customized to you. To some degree, if you're on a live stream that's navigated by an influencer, that's not you. You're kind of letting go. And there's some nervousness, I imagine. And the entirety of just how that interaction goes, it lives on someone else's platform. The whole dynamic of that technology is it's outside of their control. And I just wonder how how comfortable do they feel? Are they getting more comfortable with the idea that a lot of this interaction is not nearly as controlled as I imagine luxury has historically wanted it to be? Yeah, that's such a great one and a key theme as well in the past 10 years about giving up control. And for the brands, it's a major change in how they're thinking about their brands. We went from brands, again, having one-way conversations for their entire lifetime with their clients, them being the tastemakers, the decision makers, telling you what to buy and when to all of those spaces that are diffusing and personalizing that control in a very real way. I think that a key realization probably in the mid 2000s was that those conversations were happening whether the brands was involved were involved or no and so the brands had a choice either we can partake in some of those conversations or we can let the conversations happen without us by people who either love us or hate us and so by deciding to engage into that two-way conversation it's a trade-off you have to give away a bit of control because you're bringing in the consumer for the first time into that very real conversation it has very pragmatic applications we're taking thousands of customer orders in DM requests on Facebook messages on WhatsApp, right? We're engaging at a one-on-one granular level with consumers in a way that we had never done before. But to your point as well, when we are creating those environments and entering into some of those platforms and an ecosystem that we do not control, I think that the key is to not measure the success of it by the same KPIs and outputs that we look at when we look at a retail experience. Yes, you're not going into a beautiful Vuitton or Gucci store being served uh, some champagne and some petit four while you're shopping with your personal stylist. But what can you do? You're shopping with friends in a highly engaged community where your creative director still can explode with his creative vision into building that virtual environment. And that too is exciting for those brands. There is also the notion of how do you stay relevant? That I think is super important. When we talk about luxury brands, we, we talk about timelessness and timelessness and relevance have a very interesting dynamic together. How do you stay relevant at a very specific moment in time while building a legacy that's going to still be here 100 years from now? Um, so some of those experiences are meant to be, I think, more short term. And I kind of love the ephemeral nature of some of those, right? In retail, the same notion would be how do we think about pop-ups how do we think about like little events in a retail environment that's not your fully fleshed beautiful flagship but when we take that online we can have a lot more fun at a much cheaper cost with different audiences that you are usually not talking to so yes we are building that aspirational buyer the buyer of tomorrow but we're also showing a side of the brand that potentially we've we haven't shown before and there is yeah, there's a, a fun element into that. Is it easy? No, I can tell you that there's a lot of internal negotiations to get some of those things fully past the line. But the preliminary results we're seeing out of a lot of those are quite successful. And this is why you're seeing also a, a reallocation of media dollars into some of those new platforms, I believe. Yeah, I mean, you kind of took us down the marketing path. So the questions that follow are really, as you mentioned, right, the KPIs have changed, the dynamics of marketing have changed. So 
maybe a, a broader question here, right? As, as I think about historically, what these brands have done has just been, you know, traditional sort of brand marketing, right? It's it's billboards, it's out of home, it's TV, it's let me give the aura of this brand to you. And whether you're an aspirational buyer or a current buyer, you just think of us, we're very top of mind. And that's how we kind of win you over over time. And then obviously there's our physical experiences or the experiences that we cultivate. I do feel like it has transitioned a bit from that brand spend to a little more of maybe like direct marketing spend, right? Maybe more specific KPIs. We're actually looking for attribution. We're a little more targeted in our approaches and we need to know that a dollar in is $2 out. Is that fair? Are they starting to just think like maybe other categories, other brands have been doing for a while? Yeah, I think that's super fair. You think about traditional media dollar spends in all of these sort of offline touch points within the customer journey a lot of TV, a lot of print, a lot of out of home and billboards to your points. With the increase of e-commerce, we've had to start engaging into both paid search and display a little bit more on those online touch points with the huge advantage that those are much better trackable outputs and we can measure the ROI of those in a much better way as well with a direct correlation into attribution with its limits, obviously, into the actual commerce experience that a brand will have and generate. So that happened, certainly. Huge shift of media dollars into those online touch points. However, as all of the brands started doing that, the competitivity and the prices of those channels has increased. And it's now super, super expensive, right, to spend dollars in a meaningful way on a Facebook or on an Instagram or on a TikTok to that matter. And, and breaking through the noise is also very hard because now you're not only competing with your traditional brands, you're also competing with your DTC brands that are actually spending 100% of their dollars into those channels. They do not have money to really spend to direct people to non-existent retail stores that are brick and mortar, right? So I am seeing that cost of acquisition increasing a lot, which is forcing brands to either optimize a lot more and be a lot more efficient in their spend, or funnily enough, go back to some of the traditional ways of doing media advertising. And this is the rise of some really interesting subway takeovers, for example, that I've seen in New York City from luxury brands, the rise of much better bus shelter billboards that I've seen as well that are video optimized, connected TV. I love what we can do with that as well is something where we're spending a little bit of time investigating what, what can be done there. So it's been that interesting curve. Let's see what's going on in the next five years, perhaps. But yes, overall, we are shifting more online. It's becoming more competitive. How do we get more efficient? And this is a sort of like a nice bridge into the notion that we can also be more efficient because we have way more data behind it to measure the efficiency. So now we can have sophisticated media mix modeling, for example, to really start correlating the optimal channel allocation of our media dollars into whatever output we decide to have, right? And that can be a commerce one, that can be an, a professional brand awareness one, that can be a CRM and customer engagement one. And so we have that, that data as well that is making it a little bit easier to, to invest in some of those uh, channels. And Jess, you, you said a term that we want to go into next, which is direct-to-consumer. And so... You know, we're talking about distribution, we're talking about commerce and marketing and, and how luxury is adopting that. And, and what I'm curious to hear from you is you know, the, the D2C model is definitely a distribution channel. It's also a different business model and there are different marketing tactics. And how can you summarize how 
the traditional kind of legacy luxury brands have thought about the D2C movement and do they see it as competitive or do they see it as a maybe evolution of how they should think about reaching customers and, and just contextualize kind of that, that very different and somewhat recent model to, to bring brands and products in front of a customer? I will separate my answer into, into two pieces. One, DTC-only brands that have been emerging and been extremely successful in the past 10 years are not D2C anymore right? They all have some sort of retail expansion. I think that with D2C and back to that rising cost of acquisition, you're getting to a level of diminishing returns in your spend that is making it super hard to continue acquiring new customers. So you can cultivate your existing, retain your existing customers, build that lifetime value. But at some point, you actually need to build really organic growth. And that very often comes in the form of retail stores. So we're back into that loop of retail. And I have to tell you, I'm a huge fan of retail. I enjoy shopping. I love to go into stores. So we are seeing the early DTC brands uh, of yesterday, the, the Warbies, the Caspers, to an extent, the Glossiers, right? Now all experimenting with some stores where it gets interesting that those stores are not your mom stores. Those are smaller footprints, leaner inventory, mobile checkout stores, stores as community hubs as well with a lot of content, masterclasses, community events, right? So that's a super interesting conversation into how they are rethinking about their 2.0, which is a store expansion strategy. Now, when we take a step back and we look at luxury brands, they saw the rise of DTC brands as pretty much like a non-competitive threat at the beginning, I would say. Now, though, as those brands are becoming extremely sophisticated in building those hubs and that community online, they are becoming brands that we are, I think, competing with online. Not only because, again, they're spending 100% of their media dollars into online channels competing with us on both branded and non-branded keywords on paid search, but because they are also offering value propositions on their DTC experiences that us, for a lot of legacy reasons, we cannot offer. When you think about a lot of personalization, a lot of subscription work, a lot of loyalty programs, for example, we are building that maturity, but we are starting with a step backwards, right? So it's it's a very interesting dynamic to look at that. A lot of the DTC brands are also starting to expand into other online channels, So a lot of DTC brands have DTC plus Amazon or DTC plus Sephora in beauty, for example, right? And I think that ultimately it's also showing one of the limits of DTC, which is how do you get that reach at scale? How do you get that discovery at scale? How do you build that awareness, right? And so working that upper funnel, that customer acquisition, bringing that client in, you have to do with some of those much bigger legacy players that still remain online. The experience can still be very much an online experience, but it sounds like you do need to bring in some of those new partners, right? So some, yeah, very interesting trends there. Lastly, I would say that there is a push from a channel and distribution strategy of all the brands that I've worked with to move more towards a DTC business and rely probably a little bit less on some of their existing retailers of choice. And the reason why, generally speaking, and beyond the idea that it's a little bit more profitable, is that you also have a better control over your assortment, your pricing strategy, and then super importantly, your consumer data. When you sell on your website, it's your consumer. When you sell via a retailer, it's not your consumer. And this is a gold currency. We want to be able to talk to our consumer. We want to understand them. We want to tailor 
our offerings and products and services to them as well. So there is definitely that goal as well towards just more reliance into D2C. And that's something that all the brands that I've worked with are exploring uh, intensely. You hit something really interesting there. And I want to make sure that we have time in this conversation to talk about the impact of COVID because how could we not? (laughs) And one piece of this is I've always thought image luxury brands, especially, but uh, omni-channel brands generally, right? Legacy omni-channel brands have always, it seems to me, let e-commerce be kind of second fiddle, third fiddle even too how important the physical in-store experience has been to them and even how important just being a wholesaler has been, right? Selling through retail channels um, that are outside of their scope. And the transition in COVID was rapid. It was accelerated. They were forced to think about e-commerce as central. They were forced to maybe pull back on wholesale relationships because those retailers were themselves struggling. How much of that sticks around? How much of the reprioritization to e-commerce sticks around? How much of this new direction of being a direct-to-customer seller sticks around? I think a lot from the results that we're seeing this year in 2021, a lot of it is sticky behavior that is impacting how we're shaping our roadmap in the medium term. Last year, in the span of two weeks, we had to close all of our stores in the U.S., and rely essentially on the only door open, which was our website for a lot of brands. Beyond the horrific health and people catastrophe behind it, COVID was an amazing digital accelerator for a lot of those brands in the last year. We were able to unlock and secure investments and IT resources that previously had been planned for five years from now. And it it forced a lot of brands to become a lot leaner and agile into the customer experiences that they were offering. Things like curbside pickup, for example, or the thinking of how do you rethink the role of a store if it's not a store that can welcome customers anymore? Can it become a black stores and function with back-of-house operations into last-mile fulfillment, delivering assortment to your e-commerce customers, for example, as well, right? So we had to pivot really fast, frankly, be very scrappy in delivering some of that. And this year in 2021, as the behavior is sticking, we are rebuilding some of those features as more foundational features of our tech ecosystem. And so it has allowed us to have much better discussions backed up by consumer data and expectations and behaviors that we did see last year to build a roadmap that is, I think, a lot more sophisticated when we think about tech and, and digital channels. So what we're seeing is that, yes, 2021, the, the digital behavior is ticking. I was reading that about two-thirds of Americans tried a new way of shopping during covid And at least a third of them are intending to keep with it moving forward. It was not all in beauty and luxury and and retail and fashion. A lot of people for the first time bought groceries online, for example, last year. But now they're realizing that convenience and that assortment that comes with it as well. And so they're sticking with that and then expanding that to other categories. So we are absolutely still seeing the effects, I think, of, um, of COVID. Another thing that happened, I think, in 2020 in the U.S. particularly, A lot of the social justice movements that have happened have also forced brands to rethink how lean they want to be into having conversation and a point of view and a voice online. And so beyond the commerce elements, I also see 2020 just generally as such a pivotal year in how brands decide to interact with consumers on different touch points online, because now they've been asked to 
commit to have an opinion, to not hide behind just a marketing message. And this event from a transformation perspective has forced us to have discussions internally about decision-making, about taking a stance, about rapidity of action instead of waiting three months for a PR message to get approved, right? And, and talking about all of that. And, and it has also has really interesting effect of how do we not just talk about products and discounts, but how do we just ask our consumers if they're doing okay, right? And so how do we also, us as a brand, switch the messaging a little bit more into, hey, it's such a hard time. Are you are you good? Is there anything that I can do for you? And, and at LVMH, I was there last year, but I've seen so many cool examples of brands in a very organic, very authentic way, just engaging with their consumers without having anything to sell. And that too, I mean, I think was incredibly refreshing. And that's also something that uh, is sticking this year when we look at how do we communicate on what kind of platforms with what kind of messaging. Yeah, that is a really fascinating transition. Generally, it feels, and I, I've always thought it a little bit catalyzed by Gen Zs, that there's so much demand from that audience to have a real authentic connection with the brands that they purchase from. Their demand for there to be a real story from those brands and to feel like, well, obviously, they're looking at beauty, they're looking at clean beauty, right? They have priorities in the way that they shop. And that has really guided a lot, it seems like, from the brands of how they direct those messages and how they communicate very organically and how they reflect all their goals and just have like a real two-way conversation, which I mean, social has clearly, it seems, enabled it and supported it. And it's just, it's, it's such an interesting transition that you've highlighted there. Yeah, it's that. It's also holding brands accountable. I think it's, it's Gen Z's particularly kind of voting with their wallet when it comes to brand loyalty. We are seeing generally loyalty levels declining across newer generations because of that accountability that's demanded from the brands. It's about showing the receipts of what you're preaching. Is that actually true? So it's not just saying that we're clean to your point. It's show me how clean you are, right? And show me the list of ingredients. It's adding a whole layer of transparency, typically in the beauty industry. Don't put a nice statement on Instagram about diversity in your workforce, show us how many minorities and people of colors you have on your board sitting, right? I think that that's a fascinating change as well that we're observing in the retail industry. And some brands, I think, are struggling with that in that it's a demand now. I mean, you you have to do that, right? And then some brands are doing great. I mean, Sephora typically has done its 15% pledge last year, dedicating 15% of its shelf space to Black-owned businesses. And they've committed to this and they're showing the results and they're acknowledging that they could have done better many, many years ago, right? And I think I love that. I love that self-reflection. I love brands that can put themselves in perspective and have that authentic conversation with Gen Zs. I think that's extremely powerful. And I think that it's also a really nice way to actually encourage uh, small businesses and entrepreneurs to also have a voice in that conversation. So back to, again, the rise of D- DTC and, and sort of emergence of new brands. I think the the sort of value-driven brands are uh, super important, are here to stay. And I, and I highly encourage that, frankly. Jess, you You've been, you were talking about not just how these things are communicated from the brands and, and their presence and the kind of the, the halo around that, but you started to get into like 
what are the products they actually are producing and what are they buying and, and, and much more of to like get into the weeds of their business, like around like their supply chain and who they're working with. And, and that's an area I want to explore a little bit more, especially then if you kind of just bring more complexity in around sustainability and the circular economy with the product in so I'm curious how all of all of that is then brought kind of into the organization of not just how are we communicating these things, what are the broader initiatives that we're embracing and how we're we're actually going about doing that, but around what are you actually producing? Are they changing the products? Are they, in, are they changing the assortment of those and, and potentially how and where they're actually produced? that we're seeing that in multiple uh, touch points within that product journey. Uh, at the production level itself, yes, we are paying very close attention to the materials being used, how sustainable are those materials, workforce and labor conditions of the people touching on those materials, what are the working conditions, the wages, the quality of life of those people as well. Um, and then we are powering that by technology. So there is some really interesting work being done today with leather coming out of mushrooms, for example, or other organic ingredients, all right? So there's that entire world that's that's changing. We have a ton of transparency, way more than before, powered by various blockchains, for example, that are allowing the customer to see exactly where is the raw material coming from in that chain of traceability. And so that's definitely happening. Once the products gets manufactured and get sold, then we have that customer recycling ecosystem that comes into place with a lot of new business models as well. I think originally uh, it was mostly C2C, right? Consumers selling to each other, facilitated by new marketplace platforms to be able to do that, taking a cut out of the exchanges. Now, interestingly, in the past maybe three to five years, brands are starting to get involved as well into that discussion. And it's a very interesting dynamic as well, because suddenly we're starting to talk about depreciation and reselling value of a product. So looking at the uh, macroeconomics of uh, luxury goods or beauty products, it's, it's changing as well who sets the depreciation, what holds its value the best, and how is that working backwards affecting the volumes and the sales that you're seeing for the first buyer, really? This is typically very prevalent in uh, watches and jewelry. Uh, people are buying watches are as investment pieces, looking definitely at the reselling value that they can have behind it. But going back to the brand role within this, we are starting to see brands tiptoeing a little bit into resell to want to reclaim a little bit as well some of that ownership of brand image, equity, value, all of those notions together with some really interesting programs around trade-ins, around refurbishments, around guaranteed to have been certified by the brand itself, right? Some players are doing that very well that are not brands. I mean, the real real is an example that comes to mind. There is a bunch of others that are more institutional players that are, that are coming into this. We haven't seen yet huge brand programs going into that space, right? I think that in luxury specifically, there's a little bit as well of the notion that our products are manufactured so well that they are 
very well lasting. So we don't really need to get into that circular economy yet, right? I've seen that a little bit. What I've seen are mostly um, department stores starting to build vaults of pre-owned, pre-loved products that they can sell back again as well. They're playing more on the marketing side. I think of it's a vintage product that you can buy. It's a collection that we're, it's a skew that we're not producing anymore. So there's that as well. But it's very much a parallel conversation to the amazing velocity I'm seeing in still consumer to consumer exchanges on, on platforms like, you know, Poshmark and ThreadUp and those guys as well that are, I think, generating millions of volume and, and, and that is, is exciting, sort of like that second life of those products. What I'm excited to see are brands starting to get into how do we bring back that consumer into the brand ecosystem? If it's a consumer that's a secondhand consumer, what's the value prop that we're bringing to them versus a first-time buyer or just a, a new product buyer all the time? I, I'd love to see more brands play within that a little bit, frankly. Maybe to do a little transition here, we've spent a lot of time talking about winning over customers and having a great and authentic conversation with them in that front end. I am interested also in something that you said earlier, which was, boy, is it hard to compete for new customer acquisition. It's only getting harder. And so on some level, it is a little bit about, let's just make sure that we keep the customers that we have and let's get them to buy more stuff and let's drive loyalty and grow that experience. And that has been a huge interest area for us. I think there's maybe two questions there. One is, I mean, do you see that? Are you seeing a lot of brands turn inward and say, hey, how do I really cultivate the audience that I have here? What kinds of tips and tricks and personalization and you know messaging and styling products and any associate interactions that I can use to drive these customers to keep coming back to me? How do I kind of think about prioritizing that? And maybe the flip side of it is e-commerce changes that a little bit, right? Instead of walking into a physical store and building a relationship with my favorite associate in that retail environment, you kind of have random touch points on me and, you know, increasingly fewer and fewer touch points given the movements towards privacy. So how do you re-engage me if I purchase something, if I purchased a couple of times, do you know, how do you loop me into that cycle of, I, I want to come back and I'm loyal to your brand? Yeah, definitely amazing questions. I think that to your first point, I can see both experiences and services as being two fundamental pillars that we're working on to cultivate and retain and maintain that clients that an existing client experiences in that we want to make sure that the website experience that they're experiencing is very custom, very personalized. And we have the data today to, to do that, right? To show you the products you're the most likely to purchase, to pre-select your size on a PDP, to ensure that we can have a, a shade finder for your foundation that's going to be exactly the one that you need. By doing that, we are removing the frictions, the uncertainty around purchasing a new product online. We're lowering returns. I mean, it's a very much a self-fulfilling, virtuous cycle. On the other side of that, I think from a services perspective, this is where we are spending quite a bit of time thinking about the incentives for you to stay a client. And those very often, they go beyond products. So this is everything around loyalty and how do we reward you being a loyal brand customer. And loyalty triggers, yes, they have price incentives and promos and buy one, get one off, those kinds of things. But they can also get a bit more sophisticated into how do we invite you to events, to master classes, to talk with our creative directors, to engage with 
other people in the community to have a voice when you leave a review as a preferred customer. I mean, there's a lot of things, right, that we can do there that would allow us to continue cultivating that, that sort of like CRM database of those super loyal clients. Another sort of like side note there is how do we transform detractors into some of those super good clients as well. And I kind of love that topic because statistically we've seen that if you have a really bad experience, but we make it amazing, you over-index in how loyal of a client you are because you remember that at the time of hardship, we, we did you right, right? So there's that aspect as well. I think that's interesting. So I think, yes, customization, services, powered by data, this we spend a ton of time thinking about. Now, yes, it's harder because people don't want to be tracked. I, I'm i the first one to decline every single time I download a new app. Please do not track what I'm doing on this app, right? So, so it's harder. So how do we create the value prop that's good enough for you to want to have that authentic conversation with the brand, to leave your email address, to be contacted? And I, I think that the key here is to prove to the clients that we're going to build a trustworthy relationship with him or her to not spam the client with unwanted emails to be so focused, so relevant, so perfect that one email equals one conversion, right? To get to that optimum level of how do we communicate with them. Now, you said something interesting, Ilona, is it you don't have like your dedicated stylist. I think that that's changing online as well. Now you are able to, through technology, talk to the same person every time video with them all the time. They can send you on WhatsApp the key new items from the hot new collections in your size that they know you're going to love, send you a, a pay-by link, and then you can just complete that transaction online. So we are also spending a bit of time trying to replicate that one-on-one -on -one connection, human interaction that you have with, with your stylist in store, right? And we have some cool technology that we've we've tried that allows us to do that, allowing us to leverage people in store to talk to clients on the website directly as well. We at Dyson do some really interesting virtual demo videos as well to show you a product, to show you how to potentially like troubleshoot a product as well. So there's there's excitement there. I think that's that's new for a lot of brands. And so we're kind of it's a test and learn. We're playing with it a little bit. Some of what you're talking about is pure post-purchase. Like how do you fulfill this promise post-purchase? When I think about Amazon, one of the most amazing things post-purchase there is just speed of delivery. And so I'd love to hear you give a sense of prioritization, you know, in the, in the realm of post-purchase and how to both fulfill that transaction, how to fulfill that brand promise. How do you think about and where do you think most brands are at as far as the prioritization of the different technologies, the different components they're using for post-purchase? Is it just speed to delivery or what are the other things that, that fit around that to, to make sure that they have that loyal customer? I spent a lot of time in the past couple of years thinking about this because free today shipping from Amazon has reset the expectation of how I think about delivery as an American consumer. And anything else that's considerably more than that has a linear coloration in, in lower conversion rates, right? So it, it's forcing brands to step up their games. And we've been relying a lot on legacy carriers who do a great job, frankly, in the US, we're thinking about the UPS and the FedEx, right, into delivering that product. Often, though, it's not fast enough now for the expectations that consumers have, especially when it comes to peak season, to last-minute gifting, do things like that. So we are starting to play with new carriers, smaller local ones, 
who are doing some really good job, really good work into last mile delivery. And, and to that last mile delivery, going back, Elena, to the notion of sort of like giving back control, very often you're actually not using legacy players. You're losing contractors who you uh, lend your great product and your great box to, and they are responsible to bring that last mile experience to the to the consumer. So super interested in some of the tech that's happening here. I touched on that, but I am super interested into how do we use our store networks and potentially our retailer store networks into reducing that last distance to the end consumer, because we don't need to ship from two or three main national warehouses, but potentially we can ship from 1,500 stores, right? If we have the capacity behind it. Huge implications from a IT, supply chain, operations, logistics, on how do you have a seamless stock? How do you move things from one place to the other? How do you add a huge like data foundation on all of this to make sure that you can actually deliver on, on some of those things. So I think that speed to delivery is, is a critical component. I would add that reverse logistics is equally as important. Ability to return to exchange in a very seamless way without having to box your product, to pack your product, to print a label. Who has a printer? I don't have a printer at home. That's also is super important, right? I think that initiatives like you can return your Amazon product at calls has been really interesting for, for calls as well. It's a great consumer ad, but it's, it's been super interesting. One of the companies that I kind of, I'm super excited about is Olive right now and how they're rethinking sustainability around boxes. Instead of sending you cardboard boxes all the time, you have that single recyclable, reusable box with all of your e-commerce delivery. There is a ton there that's exciting around speed to delivery, but the delivery experience itself in touching, including, you know, on sustainability, on reverse logistics, and on some of all of that as well. So, so yes, a ton of time, lots of infrastructure investments spent on that. And I would add as well that one of the complexities, because people are engaging more and more into cross-border purchases, it's also harder and harder to ship to even here, Canada or Mexico, right? Like from the US, we're not talking about shipping super far further than that in the world, but but the costs associated with that are there. So we have to partner with the right people. And, and typically that's one thing where I do believe that partnering with the right people is probably a lot more efficient than building your own capabilities. So we are experimenting with some of those, some of those things as well. Cross-border is super interesting topic as well because there's that appetite in that global demand I think accelerated by the fact that with COVID, people are not traveling anymore as much. And so how do we really are able to provide that experience with without forcing the consumer to wait two weeks for a product they've ordered online? We are also thinking about that a bit. You bring up a really interesting point with cross-border. I think this is a fascinating tangent because COVID really was a double-edged sword on that front. Brands who relied on local tourism for revenue, I think, you know, luxury brands who at some point relied on China, Chinese consumers specifically for up to a third of their revenue, those groups are now really refocused. And in that window of quarantines, especially, of course, we're really trying to cultivate local audiences to replace this lost revenue. But on the other hand, uh, when I think about a lot of U.S. brands from an e-commerce perspective, those guys saw real material surges in cross-border traffic. There was a general growth of about 106% in some territories. D2C brands said that they saw 350%, 400% surges in demand. 
And as you cite, this is really happening without material optimization, right? These are not localized sites. There's not great fulfillment partners in place to reduce shipping delays or to make this less uncomfortable for the end customer waiting for their product. And there's still very substantial duties. I mean, you're probably paying almost as much for the duties and the shipping as you are for the product itself. So I'd love more of your thoughts here, right? How important has this cross-border demand really become to brands? Has that changed? Are they responding to this substantial surge with any material movement? Meaning if I've really seen such an enormous growth in Malaysia, for example, am I now starting to target websites there? Am I charting customer acquisition efforts there? Am I really tailoring to these customers and really tailoring my strategy in order to make the most of this growth? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And we are seeing some of those numbers, um, either the volume of like hits we're just getting on our traffic coming from regions where we didn't really have so much volume coming from before, or even just sales if we are able to ship there. So there's a few layers, right? Like one, can we ship there? Yes or no? Can we do it ourselves or do we have to use a cross-border player? That's a thing that it's just like that sort of like 101 step. Can you actually deliver products internationally to people? If yes, what are some of the constraints in terms of duties and customs, time to delivery, reverse logistics, customer service, all of those things that we need to explore and think about as well. What is super interesting in what you're discussing, Elena, is the idea as well that it's kind of like one global demand now. So in other words, how do you think about pricing? How do you think about product assortments? How do you think about brand messaging? We used to have significant price differences between regions, which was also, by the way, an incentive for travel, right? People would buy things in Miami because it would be a lot cheaper than buying them in Brazil, for example, right? Now, if you have one single PDP that everyone is hitting in the world, what kind of pricing do you have and how is that impacting your PNL as well, right? Like, So we're thinking about a lot of that before the act of are we able to ship internationally. And I think it has really interesting implications as far as your local strategy versus your global strategy when you're a very well-known brand. Because to your point, do you tailor the experience or is it kind of a one-size-fits-all? If I see the demand, I'm going to sell the same product to an American, someone who lives in Asia, to someone who lives in Europe. So super interesting topic as well. I think that because of COVID, we've lost a huge amount of tourism sales. We've lost a huge amount of travel retail sales. We've lost a huge amount of cruise ship sales as well. Some of those are starting to get back together, but I'm a huge believer that those three touch points will change as well because of COVID and accelerated by digital transformation. So how do we also rethink some of those touch points around travel retail and transnational commerce, those those types of commerce touch points that are also very interesting? I was reading some stats around Canadian consumers and how time to deliver is more important than price for them as a key decision trigger when they are purchasing something online. That's that's huge, right? Like that tells you something. So is there an opportunity to have local warehouse partners, local carriers there that can improve your speed to market when you want to deliver last mile? Probably. And some of those things we're also exploring to some extent. Just starting to summarize some of these things a lot of what we're talking about is it's technology adoption, it's new business model, new distribution channels. I mean, it, I just listening to you, like 
it's complexity. Like the, it seems like the complexity, if you're sitting in your seat, in your peers, of just all of the alternatives that you have on how you reach customers or communicate with customers, it's just, it is in some respects overwhelming, I would expect from a decisioning standpoint of what are the technologies that you want to try and what, how do you keep your core stable? And so can you give us a sense of how does that feel? How does that look inside of the day-to-day about making sure that you stick with your core and, and what's gotten you and, and the other brands to this point? But you know, try these new technologies and are they viewed as experiments and some will fail and some will succeed, or are they viewed as mission critical at this point and necessary to compete? And just maybe share with us a little bit about like how do these things actually get decisioned and then start to take hold? Again, we went from having retailers to retailers and an e-commerce website to an ecosystem that's so complicated. And within that ecosystem, having so many different models, it's not just retail or wholesale anymore. It's e-concession, it's marketplace, it's pop-ups, right? So all of those things are super complicated on one side. On the other side, consumer expectations are increasing all the time. So how do we over-deliver in the services, in the experience while putting the client first? Another key bucket of why it's complicated is because we have data, but almost too too much. And there's just data at every single touch point. So how do we make sense of it? And one of the key things that you've touched on is we need to have a foundation from a transformation perspective that is allowing us to play with those different levers. There is probably an IT core, I would say, that we need to have. And it's the notion of you cannot run before you start working in, in IT and tech, and you have to have the right OMS and the right CRM and the right systems in place to be able to engage with that. And once we do that, which, by the way, not like a small thing to do, it's actually very complicated to have that data lake, have the super strong IT foundation core for your organization to start building those experiences on top of each other. Once we have that, I think that you're touching on something that's super important, which is internal organization and transformational change. And it's all about how, from a a mindset and a culture perspective, are those brands able to start testing things out? Because we would like, I think on my project system now, there's like 150 things, right? I cannot do everything. How do we think about prioritization of largest impacts, but also in light of feasibility, price to make it happen, a number of teams that need to get involved, the fact that we all work for global organizations. And so it's not just one single market either. You have to go through the consideration of what is on the roadmap of some of the other markets as well. All of that requires... I think, transformation at a very important level of the organization to be able to have the mindset of saying, we're going to test those things in a very agile way that's not disrupting the other systems, that's not putting at risk anything else. And I love tech today that is allowing us to do that in almost running in a parallel track to business as usual allowing us to do enhancements that are very light, that are not code heavy, that we can A-B test in a very seamless way, I think to get those learnings fast. Once we get learnings, that's when we start scaling up. But a lot of the work that I've been doing in the past couple of years as well has been identifying sort of white space opportunities and how we get into some of those for testing in in our brands. And a lot of that work has been around, okay, how do we test something without touching anything else in the business? How do we get those learnings fast? And if it sucks, let's fail fast, right? If it works, how do we scale 
and what's the process to scale that to other markets, other regions, other products, other brands. So it's it's a complex topic because it's it's touching on on how we work, how we process things, right? And uh, it's hard for tech companies to come into that ecosystem because they have to fit in into ways of working of bigger brands and potential clients in a way where they're very light on the infrastructure and yet deliver immense results to get onboarded. You already started to answer this question and it was going to be, you know, all of that layered into then, you know, a lot of what we think about in our world is new technology and startups. And you started to kind of give the, the cheat code, if you will, of what is that framework that you're thinking about? as you're evaluating all of these, you know, nuances in, in, as you said, risks, like there, there's risk to all of these. And so there's a balancing of risk to a certain extent, working with early stage companies probably introduces a new risk just because of where they're at. How, how have you thought, not just at Dyson, but in all of your roles about balancing all of these objectives that you have with also then, you know, how do you think about working with early stage companies with startups, which are probably trying to introduce new technologies that mm-hmm. may fit into your framework or roadmap, but you're also sitting in a much larger entity than they are. Yeah. And that usually proposes some kind of unique challenges to both sides. Yeah. I mean, listen, the ideas are always good. Rarely have I seen a startup pitching me something that I thought was a bad idea. So if I could do everything, I would want to do everything, right? It's not even a matter of assessing how good the idea is. It's it's more how do we actually make it happen? And that, I think, is the key component in how a, a startup can get into a company. How can you make it happen with the least amount of work on the company side and the most impact in the results that we're seeing? So I love working with companies that are coming to me, solving a problem that I have that they've identified already, not just a sort of template solution that they're offering to everyone. From a business model perspective, I love working with companies that are de-riskifying a pilot program that we can engage in with them, where it's a financial incentive for for us to work with them. It's a performance-based business model where we are really rewarding the incremental results that we're seeing. And then I think uh, lastly, a very clear sense of what the actual load of work required from different teams in the organization. And those things all together, I think I don't see that very often when startups are pitching us their new tools and solutions. There are some fundamentals that startups are going to have to run through. So IT check, legal check, security check. Usually those are the main three, right? Out of that, I would add today a notion of checklist, right? Like, are you ADA compliant? Are you GDPR? Are you CCPA, et cetera, et cetera, right? So those things as well, we do not work with companies who don't have some of those basics either. Uh, but after that, understanding uh, how light they are, uh, what ecosystems do they plug on? Are they only a Salesforce plugin or do they work with multiple tech stacks that we might be working on as well? I think that too is important. At LVMH particularly, we we have built an ecosystem to, to really grow startups with VivaTech, Innovation Awards, Station F in France, typically. Some of those are great ways for startups to get exposure to 80-plus brands at once. And every big conglomerate generally tends to have some of those opportunities as well. So I'm also a big fan of startups engaging in that way to get... Uh, introductions for brands and for brands to have a chance to shape their product roadmap 
before it comes to a full final product. This was an exceptional conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, been a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Jess. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. If you have an idea for the show or know of someone who would make a great guest, please contact podcast at jumpcap.com. 